Hello, everyone, and welcome to CBA's At The Bar, a podcast where we have unscripted conversations with our guests about legal news, topic stories, and whatever else strikes our fancy. I'm your host, John Amarillo of Taft Law, and joining me today as my co-host is Trish Rich of Holland and Knight, and lately, NYU Law School, where I think you're you're finally finishing up that JD, right, Trish? <laughs> yeah, um, I uh, am excited. It's uh, I'm spending a lot of time in New York this semester. I'm teaching at NYU Law ethics and professional responsibility. Um, it's a weird teaching experience right now. Um, I'm in the classroom. That's great. Most We're not here them. to talk about that. <laughs> so remote. before we, before we begin today, quick programming note. Thanks, John. I know, yeah, yeah. I know many of you have been patiently awaiting the release of our three-part interview series on the trial of the Chicago 7, and I'm happy to report that we have those interviews in the can. We were set to release them this month, but the opportunity to speak with today's guest arose, and it gives us just such a timely conversation that we didn't think we could pass it up. So we decided to release this episode immediately, and we'll release the Chicago 7 series shortly. And with that, our guest today is J. Eric Connolly of Banesh Law. Eric has a distinguished practice, but has perhaps best made a national name for himself handling high-profile defamation lawsuits. Indeed, you may have heard his name recently on the New York Times podcast, The Daily, discussing his most recent action, a $2.7 billion case against Fox News, Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, and a cast of other deplorables on behalf of his client, Smartmatics an election technology company. Eric, thank you for joining us and welcome to At The Bar. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. So Eric, I like to start most interviews out with a hardball. It's a two-part question. Why do you hate America and why do you hate fair and balanced election news coverage? That's how I was raised. I was told not to believe in America or fair and balanced news coverage. It was kind of ingrained in me by my parents. And so I'm trying to pass that along to the next generation as well. Hopefully, uh, I'm doing my best at it. (laughs) Well said. So we're here today to talk about defamation. You know, I think it probably would behoove us for our audience in particular, those who are not lawyers, to just sort of define what defamation is. I think there's a a popular conception that it's something mean and something false that someone said about you. But could you be a little bit more exact for our audience? I'm hoping somebody can actually explain it to me as well. Uh, (laughs) The best I've got is defamation comes into play when you've got a factually inaccurate statement that is being published about you. If it is a factually inaccurate statement about your person or your company, that's going to be defamation. If it's factually inaccurate about your product or the services, that would fall into the category of disparagement. And a lot of times you have both uh, in the same sentence. That is absolutely perfect. So let's start with your lawsuit against Fox News. Who's your client? Why are you suing Fox News? Give us the basics. The, the basics, in the simplest sense, is Smartmatics is an election technology company. And in the 2020 election, they were the election technology company for L.A. County in California. That's it. That was the only place that they provided any services or any technology for. After the election, as I think uh, you probably know from the lawsuit, Fox News, Rudy Giuliani, um, and Sidney Powell started what we've characterized as a disinformation campaign, essentially telling people that Smartmatics was responsible for stealing the 2020 U.S. election and rigging the vote in favor of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Since Smartmatics was only in L.A. County in 2020, that is an an absolute mathematical impassibility. And since they weren't in any of the contested jurisdictions, it it becomes even more of a, a factual impassibility. 
So after those defendants repeated that accusation against Smartmatics night after night and caused real damage to the company, I was retained and we looked into the, the idea of bringing a defamation and a disparagement suit against them. Now, Eric, did you just get this as, and I want to talk about, I understand this is your second defamation case, right? And this is not my second defamation case. Uh, I had a rather significant one that the team and I worked on several years ago out in South Dakota uh, for a beef producing company. And that was my first defamation case. And so it was kind of interesting (laughs) to jump off with that one. But since then, I, I have been retained uh, to take on some other defamation matters. I had a large one that we filed early in 2020 on behalf of Smile Direct Club um, as well. But then this isn't my second rodeo. I've had okay, more than excellent. just two. And so I think I thought that because I had read in connection with your first one that it was your first one. And so um, uh, I think I think Trish was... is implying that you don't know what you're doing, Eric. <laughs> you know what? That's, I'm going to explain to you. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Many people don't think I know what I'm doing. And so I, I appreciate that. So your first major case in this area was the largest defamation verdict ever, right? Yes. And that is the famous pink slime case. Can you talk just for a minute about that? So I never call it that word. It is... Uh... I, I assume that you don't, but I think that's how our listeners might know it. <laughs> So my client in that case, and we had a great, great team and some amazing lawyers worked on that case, but the client was a beef producer. They made a lean beef, essentially taking uh, a product and making it almost all muscle meat. So it was an amazing product that people used, and people were using it all over the country for ground beef um, and other utilizations. But then ABC started a campaign where they kept calling it the, the word you used, and mm-hmm. telling people that it wasn't safe, that it wasn't beef, and that it wasn't nutritious. And as a result of that ABC campaign that lasted about a month, this company lost almost all of its business. It had shut down three of their manufacturing facilities. Uh, they lost almost every contract that they had. And so you take a, a family-owned business that had spent 20 years building it up from the ground up, and it got decimated in 30 days. So that was our first case that we worked on. And a lot of people that worked on that case are working on this case too. So really lucky to have kind of a lot of the same team. That's excellent. I think some of our listeners and John know, I grew up on a farm. And so when I read about that case, that was a real gut punch to think about all those jobs lost and the damages that company must have suffered. It, it was really heartbreaking. When you talked to the family that started it, you could just see how much of their life they put into this company, that it was everything to them. And it was getting ripped away from them by disinformation, something that just wasn't true. And it it was really hard. It it was really hard. And I think that the lawsuit obviously helped them a lot. It gave them a chance to kind of defend their brand, defend their reputation again. And there was obviously a a monetary recovery for them at at the end of the day as well. But when I met that family, I was blown away by that family, and I was heartbroken uh, over the story for them. So that went to verdict, right? Uh, no, we settled that four weeks into the jury trial. So we were okay. we were about to, to put on our damages people. So our damage witnesses were about to hit the stand, and that's when we reached the settlement. Excellent. And uh, how did they find you? So how did that case start with us? We were, a group of us was down in Atlanta, We were wrapping up 
what was a, a two-year-long arbitration, and we were on our final legs of that, and we were contacted and given the opportunity to do a pitch for the case. And so a, a group of us, including Dan Webb, who I think is one of the, the most brilliant lawyers in the world. The, um, yeah, we've heard of him. Yeah, he, some people have heard of him. Some people have heard of him. He's pretty darn good. He's pretty darn yeah. good. Um, but a group of four of us went down and we met with the family and we pitched it and they picked us. And then we That's spent it. five years working that case. And so you were still at Winston when you did that case and you've since moved over to Venice, right? Yes. Yes, I did. Yeah. Excellent. So then for this case, did you just get a cold call on it? Is that how it worked? I did get a cold call um, for this. <laughs> it was right after Thanksgiving. And I got a phone call from the company, um, their general counsel, actually, and asked me to take a look at it. And so that probably uh, ruined your Thanksgiving, right? <laughs> well, it was already after Thanksgiving. And okay. All I think right. all of us had much smaller Thanksgivings than we normally do this year. And so spoke to him for about an hour. And then I went and watched some TV to see what he was talking about in terms of more details, because I had heard about it slightly before that. And after talking to him for an hour and then watching TV for about an hour, jumped on another call with them. And so that's that was the start of it. So I heard you in another interview describe exactly that process as well, that you talked to him for an hour and then you watched Fox News for an hour. So is that the longest consecutive amount of time you'd ever watched Fox News at that point in your life? I don't know if I'm allowed to give away uh, if I'm a Fox News watcher or not, but I will tell you that is the longest consecutive watching of Fox News uh, that I'd ever had. So let's let's go there. What were you seeing on Fox News when you turned that on about your client? So I watched a series of the broadcasts that they had done. And by doing that, I was able to see how many different people in terms of their anchors that they had covering this. And then I got to see... The, the terms and the language that they were using, not just their guests, but also the facts anchors themselves, describing Smartmatics as being this company that masterminded a, a plot to steal the 2020 U.S. election. And the characterizations went from them being a foreign-owned company to being a foreign company to being designed to rig elections to being corrupt. And so it, it was pretty intense in terms of what they were saying about the company. If I remember correctly, they they even accused the company of being started by long-dead Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez, right? Yes, that, that they did say that Hugo Chavez was uh, one of the individuals that founded the company, which is not true, and, by the way. Right, and just to be clear, all the accusations about your company that you addressed before, those are all false, right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I just have to say, I, have, I haven't quite made it through your entire complaint because it's very long. It is what, 754 paragraphs over 276 pages. But I have to tell you, it's, it's one of the most interesting pieces of legal writing that I have read in a long time. It's just, it's just really great. It's exactly the sort of thing that for my students, it's, it's clear and it's easy for, and I can see that you wrote it so anybody could pick it up and read it and understand it. And I think that was very brilliant. But one of the things that really struck me as I was reading it, and I'll just give you one example, is, and I will start by saying I am not a Fox News viewer. <laughs> and, and so I, I didn't think I had really consumed much of this rhetoric that was in the marketplace. But there were things that I thought that I understood about the situation that when I read your complaint, I found out were false. Like, for example, I thought that I understood 
that Dominion made voting machines and Smartmatics made the software that goes on that voting machine. And that is something that it very clearly originated in Fox News that permeated all the way out to somebody like me who doesn't even watch Fox News. And I only understood that that was false by reading the complaint. And that was really interesting to me, like how pervasive these misstatements have become in popular culture. Is that, um, how have you found that? So I, I think you're, you're picking up on a very good point. And one of the reasons why defamation cases like this are really important. Once a false statement is made, it spreads, it gets republished. And the more it gets republished, the more it gets widely adapted by people as just being the way it is. And so one of the things that you see here is the false statements being made about Smartmatics. It became gospel to people because they heard it and they heard it over and over again. And what our complaint is alleging, obviously, is that Fox News with a very significant microphone and a very significant platform was the voice that was really making that that accusation spread everywhere. And so that's that's one of the reasons why you have to have a, a, a lawsuit like this. It's one of the only ways that a company like Smartmatics, which is a small company, I mean, compare Smartmatics to Fax News. You know, it's not an even fight when you're talking about who's got a larger microphone here. So you have to be able to bring a, a lawsuit like this so Smartmatics can get their their story out there and try to fight back. Let's drill down on that a little bit, Eric, because it when I generally think of defamation suits, and I know this is a, at least a popular opinion in legal circles, it, they're generally seen by lawyers as losing propositions, not only because they can be hard to prove, but because they can actually draw more attention to the lie, right? Or the, the fact that one might seek to hide in the case of, for instance, Donald Trump is very famous for bringing these kinds of suits in order to intimidate and gain leverage on people. The fact that Trish just referred to your your prior case as the pink slime case would seem to indicate to me that even if you're successful in these lawsuits, you can't really put the genie back in the bottle, right? Yeah, I think that's a challenge that you always come up with. One of the hopes that you have with the lawsuits is that you you get a microphone to have somebody spread the the accurate information and that you can kind of combat it to the best of your ability. But notwithstanding that, you can still have that lingering impact that the false statements continue to permeate. So even mm -hmm. if the lawsuit helps you move the needle somewhat, you still have this stigma that can be attached to you. So when you right. have some companies that have been successful, the defamation does have a stigma that can last for years and years and years that continues to do damage to you. So you do your best to mitigate it, but you can't eliminate it. And to that point, we are already seeing, I think, a real life impact of your lawsuit on uh, the way Fox News and even Newsmax um, and OANN are behaving, right? We saw Lou Dobbs was recently let go from Fox News. I, I don't know the background to that, but I know it, in the press, it was largely attributed to these defamation lawsuits that have been brought against Fox. I think everyone saw that that Newsmax news anchor walk off the set. Um, uh, that was incredible. Every, um, yeah. I, that was the first opportunity I'd ever had to see anything on Newsmax. And I loved that he's just pulled up this statement from his from the company's lawyer and started reading it on TV and then just got up and walked off. I mean, Eric, how did you feel when you saw that clip? I mean, you did that, right? 
So we, somebody did send me that clip, obviously, <laughs> and I, I did, I'm I did sure watch a, it. A thousand people sent you that clip, first of all. <laughs> so I saw it. I okay. saw that clip for certain. But what I certainly saw was a, a news organization that had their lawyers tell them, don't let somebody say this again. And that was the reaction that we, we saw. I don't think of that as stifling speech. I, I look at that as a news organization trying to take a preemptive measure not to do more damage. So with the firing of Lou Dobbs, so first of all, do you think that the reason he, I don't know, do we know for sure it was a firing or is it, I think we just understand it to be a separation, right? Yeah, I have no idea. Okay. Um, I have no idea. I saw that announcement, uh, but I don't know yeah. why it happened, and I don't know how it, it's being It doesn't primed. make sense to me, and again, I'm no defamation expert, that, that it is or isn't connected to your lawsuit, because they, they can't mitigate anything now by, you know, getting rid of the people that said it, right? Yeah, the damage has been done in terms of the false information has been making its way uh, around the world, and so there's not much you can do once that genie's out of the battle. How is your client doing? How are they holding up? They're doing as well as they can. They are focused on working their business every day. They're, they're focused on trying to mitigate the damage as best they can. This was a, I mean, this shook, this shook everybody up over there. I mean, you're talking about a company that has tried to do the right thing, uh, was very proud of what they had done in L.A. County, and it was a, it was almost a celebratory mood for them that this was this was a very significant contract for them. Doing well in L.A. was a big deal because uh, L.A. County is a big county for people to use election technology. And so you essentially have um, imagine you you've just you've completed your Super Bowl like that big mm -hmm. target that you've had forever, and you think you're you're going to go to Disney World. You think you're going to high five and everything is going to be fantastic, and then all of a sudden somebody pulls you into this claim that you stole an election that you barely played a role in. It's absolutely devastating. I think I read in your complaint, is, did it say that LA County is the largest voting county in the United States? Yes, that's so correct. So in their participation, your client's participation in the, in the election was limited only to LA County, correct? Yep, LA County only. They only provide technology and services there, nowhere else. And, and nobody was using their software anywhere else. Yeah, it's so interesting to me because, you know, John and I were talking about this beforehand. You know, you're not going to be taking discovery on the marginal difference of whether or not the Smartmatics right. machines yeah. in Detroit flipped votes, right? You're just going to be able to show up and say we weren't there. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty straightforward fact pattern with respect to whether or not we had any role in the election. You know, Smartmatics was in L.A., Nowhere else. So Georgia, Pennsylvania, Nevada, Arizona, Michigan, Wisconsin, all the states that people may have been talking about. All I have to say is that we weren't there. So we could not have had a role in anything. And if someone w were to decide to try to steal Republican votes, L.A. County probably wouldn't be <laughs> the first place for them to start, right? I, I don't think anybody really questioned where L.A. County was going to turn up in the 2020 election. I think it went 71% for the Democrats this year, and I think it was 72% for the Democrats back in the, the previous election. So I, I don't think there was a huge margin shift in LA County. That's probably a good place for us to take a break. We'll be right back.
This episode of At The Bar is brought to you by CourtFiling.net, your solution for filing in over 100 courts in the state of Illinois. CourtFiling.net provides a better e-filing experience, focusing on speed and ease of use in the e-filing process. CourtFiling.net is affordable and offers 24-7 phone, email, and chat support. Visit us at CourtFiling.net to receive 30 days unlimited free electronic filings and see why it's the best solution for your firm. Let CourtFiling.net worry about your e-filing so you can get back to taking care of your clients. Getting legal malpractice insurance doesn't have to be complicated. Let CBA Insurance Agency do the heavy lifting for you. We shop to the top carriers to find the best rates. Get a free quote by visiting CBAinsurance.org. And we're back. So, Eric, one of the the themes that we were touching on in the first half of our conversation was uh, accountability. We were kind of dancing around that issue a little bit. And I appreciate the fact that because of the nature of your client's business, you need to stay apolitical. But one of the things that I think many people in this country have been bemoaning for the last quarter of a century is the lack of accountability in the news media, especially lately from the right. I'll go ahead and make a partisan statement. I think Fox News and other right-wing media have been spreading lies and damaging the political discourse for some time, which has led to some pretty severe consequences if we've seen. And, you know, if if money and viewership are any measure, they're actually rewarded for that kind of behavior, not punished for it. So that is a long lead into this question. Are defamation suits like yours potentially part of the solution to that problem? I hope so. I think maybe that's the clearest answer I can give on that. I hope so. There is a significant amount of disinformation that's being published now from media that you wouldn't typically expect it to be. I mean, news organizations do play a very important role. Uh, the First Amendment is an important part of our Constitution, obviously. I love the First Amendment. And part of that is the great responsibility that news organizations have in our society. But we're starting to see, and we've seen it now, as you've said, growing in intensity, just a proliferation of factually inaccurate information coming out of the organizations that we as people trust the most to give us accurate information so that we can make the right decisions. So how do you fix that? You can obviously hope that they do the right thing. You can obviously hope that there are codes of ethics that news organizations follow, and a lot of them do, uh, that they try to get it right every single time. But what do you do about the people who don't get it right? This type of lawsuit and these types of defamation claims, that's one of the things you can do. It doesn't come along very often where you think you can have a case that can make a real difference like that. And right. this one this one could. And obviously, my first responsibility is to my client and to do the very best I can for my client. But if there is the benefit of correcting the trajectory that we're on in terms of disinformation, I'm all for that too. So, you know, you mentioned the First Amendment and political speech is generally afforded more protection than other types of speech, you know, in our jurisprudence. Is there a limit though? Does that principle cover false political facts or only opinions? So I think there are, there are different privileges that the law has developed um, around different types of speech. But at its core, I still don't think there's any room for the straightforward, factually inaccurate information being published time and time again. You know, if you, if you do it once, you can say, oh, well, that was a slip up. I, 
I didn't have time to hit the pause button or I was on a live show and I, I, I didn't right. know what they were going to say. Maybe you can try to say that that was just a innocent mistake that we let that get out on the air. But if you do it time and time again, and if you join in the chorus in terms of the, the statements being made by the people on your show, I think you've crossed the line away from saying that all I'm doing here is providing a vehicle for a political person to express their statements. And you're endorsing those, you're adapting those, and that makes you liable for them. Now, I read in the last couple of days that you've received at least, is it two motions to dismiss on the complaint? Is that right? Uh, we've received four. So four. the facts news entities filed their motions to dismiss, and then the uh, facts anchors also filed uh, their motions to dismiss. Okay, so first of all, I would love it if you could tell me if Rudy Giuliani or Sidney Powell are pro se in this lawsuit. I didn't look up the docket sheet, but I would love for them to be representing themselves in this matter. You, you could probably tell if there's like black sweat marks on the paper. That might be a giveaway. I, I do not think either one of them will represent themselves in this case. Oh, that's, that's, that's sad for my ongoing sources of entertainment. So what are the, you know, broadly, what are the bases for those motions to dismiss? So the, the broad bases would be invoking privilege over their communications, and most likely the neutral reporting privilege, which some states recognize allowing people to publish information simply because an important person or a famous person said it. And then they've argued that we insufficiently alleged actual malice. In a... 285-page complaint, they're arguing that the allegations are insufficient? I feel pretty good about the thoroughness of our allegations in the 285-page complaint with, um, I don't know, 100 exhibits or so. Why don't we break that down for the audience a little bit, Eric? What's the importance of actual malice in a claim like this? So actual malice is the heightened threshold of intent that we have to be able to establish it's an open question of whether or not the court will require you to prove it. But actual malice, starting from the, the New York Times versus Sullivan decision, essentially says that the speaker knew what they were saying is false or they acted with reckless disregard for the truth of their statements. And so the category of speech that is most protected, that is the burden of proof that the plaintiff has. So actually, uh, Eric, when I was researching and reading to prepare to come here today, I saw a clip on CNN the other day of First Amendment expert. I didn't know her name. It was Lynn Oberlander. And she said something about, I, I wrote this down, so I'm reading off my screen here. Political speech is really our most important speech, and it deserves an awful lot of protection. What would you say to people who hold that position? And in the interest of fairness, I will also say she followed it up by saying that your lawsuit is very strong. <laughs> I'm glad she thinks our lawsuit's strong. That makes me feel better than reading that the people think the lawsuit is weak. I think everything is different shades of gray. I mean, I think there is a, there's a difference between uh, what is being said by somebody on the floor of the House of Representatives and what somebody says on an evening news program. Those are two separate categories in my mind. Or in front of a... A landscaping operation. Or in front of a like, landscaping. Or so porn shop. Yeah, right. <laughs> so any of those. Any of those right. venues do not have the same esteem as the White House lawn or the halls of Congress. So 
I certainly appreciate and understand the, the nuances that we'll have in terms of political speech and the different degrees of protection that they get. What happened here in this situation doesn't fall into that category. So as an aside, when we had this recent large snowstorms, I was happened to be driving from New Orleans to New York and was stranded in Pennsylvania for a couple of days and, and went to Four Seasons Landscaping because I just thought it would be interesting to check out. And as absolutely ridiculous as it looks on TV, the neighborhood looks you know, way more ridiculous in person. And it really was interesting to imagine all of these news trucks pulling up to this like very industrial, like armpit of a neighborhood. And so I, I recommend checking that out if you ever find yourself in the greater Philadelphia area. <laughs> I, I'll get the, I'll get a cheesesteak when I'm there. So it's yeah. going to be perfect. And, and also, I also hope that you do defamation defense because by the end of this podcast, I think John and I are both going to need you know, defamation defense lawyers. Well, hold on, hold on. <laughs> to be clear, everything that I've stated during this podcast has been pure opinion. You said Fox News tells lies, so. Well, that's a fact, yeah. <laughs> what about, Eric, so, you know, I'm just speculating here, but what about if Lou Dobbs or Janine Purio or one of these defendant broadcasters gets up and says, that was my opinion? I mean, I think we understand that having an opinion is defensible. And we kind of, I think, know that most of Fox News' opinion shows now, right? Isn't that a decent defense for them? So actually, um, that idea is not correct. A lot of people think that as long as you couch something as an opinion, or if you characterize it as just, you know, I'm giving my opinion, that means you are immune from defamation or disparagement. That's not true. Yes, so, I do believe that, by the way. So, so but that's wrong. <laughs> That's wrong. <laughs> and the, the standard is actually whether or not a reasonable person is going to think that you have a factual basis for what you are saying. And so as long as people are giving something that even if they say it's my opinion, if the context in which they're giving it leads to the belief that there must be a factual predicate for it or basis for it, in fact, you can still be sued under defamation law for making that statement. That's why when you listen to certain broadcasts and they'll say, what I'm telling you is based upon my thorough investigation, or this is based on all this evidence I've collected, or all these witnesses that I've spoken to. Even if somebody could hear your statement and say, hmm, that kind of sounds like an opinion, you can still get sued for it because you've created this impression in the minds of readers and viewers that you must have a factual basis for it. So oh, that's really there's a big line that is drawn between pure opinions such as you know, I like this type of cheese and saying this cheese is contaminated based upon my investigation. So couching it in terms of an opinion is not enough to necessarily win protection. What about in terms of a question? Because I always think of, you know, Fox News is we're not saying that Barack Obama is half Kenyan, half alien, but we're just asking the question. That's like a, a technique they often use, right? Our, what about when they do that? Our deserve to know. Yeah. Or, yeah. So if the viewers are looking for ways to try to defame somebody by simply framing it as a question, that will not work either. And I'm not giving any legal advice or recommendations here. I don't want to get in trouble for this. But no, I, I don't think the use of clever questions gets you out of jail either. Well, Eric, I'm not saying it's my opinion, but don't you think we deserve to know if John's the worst lawyer in Chicago? Don't you think we deserve to know that? He seems 
incredibly pleasant to me so far. <laughs> so that reasonable person thing, I, I am kind of remembering something I read on the great legal resource of Twitter recently about Tucker Carlson. Is, wasn't that an issue in a case that he was involved in recently where they decided that a judge somewhere decided that no reasonable person would believe what he was saying was fact? Am I remembering that correctly? I read something along those lines as well. I, I, I have not read that opinion, but I, I think I read that on Twitter too. That, actually, that's not true. <laughs> I'm never on Twitter. So I, somebody must have shown me a tweet on that. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think I saw it on Twitter, but I've done no independent research on that. But I thought that was interesting at the time, and it makes sense given what you're telling us here. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that argument is made by defendants, and there may be situations where that defense is applicable, and there are certainly occasions where it absolutely is not applicable. Although there's probably 75 million people, at least, who would disagree with that from their own news viewership, right? Yeah, and that's very interesting because if you if you look at what is the reasonable person standard, you you clearly have a very large portion of viewership that does believe that the information is factually based and factually accurate. But I assume if you're going for the reasonable person, we start by excluding Fox News viewers, right? I'm never going to say that. I, I'm never going to say I that. <laughs> so, are you going to just to be Completely honest with me and John, we're all friends here. Are you going to own Fox News by the end of this? Is that the goal? Oh, uh, not me. I'm just a humble lawyer. I'm just a humble <laughs> lawyer. I just, I just try to get a paycheck every once in a while, and uh, that's all I do. But in terms of damages, can you talk a minute about the equitable relief you asked for in the complaint as well? Because you're asking for, a, a, is it a formal retraction, or what would that look like? So... Part of what you ask for in defamation lawsuits is some type of publication designed to fully correct the damage that is done. And so whenever you actually issue a retraction demand, what you're asking for is whatever you did and how often you did it and in whatever vehicles you used, you must publish the correct information that many times on that many platforms through those same devices because you're trying to saturate the marketplace with the truthful information, just like you saturated the marketplace with the false information. So one wow. of the things we obviously ask for is what is a full and wholesome uh, retraction. Now, it's obviously something that is a lot easier if somebody published one news article one time with one sentence that was wrong, and then news organizations will retract it by right. publishing a correction that says, hey, we got this one fact wrong, we're sorry. That's easy. It's, it's much more difficult in a situation where you've got multiple false statements published multiple times by multiple people disseminated on multiple platforms. So that gets back to what we talked about earlier, which is, you know, when I'm going to go with another metaphor here, when the, the bell is rung like that, you really can't unring it. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. I didn't realize that would be the corrective action required. So basically, Fox News would have to run corrective stories 24-7 for a while, right? For, for two uh, months, right? It would, be, it would be a challenge. Now, as far as the monetary relief sought in your complaint, would that be joint and several liability amongst the defendants? Yes. Or would, okay. And so $2.7 billion in perspective, is that a lot of money to even to Fox? I think of them as being untouchable, almost. You know, I, I have not read Fox's uh, financial statements, and so I, I don't know the answer to that. That was how we calculated the lost business value uh, for the company as a result of this. And whether or not that is a large amount for facts or a small amount for facts, I, I do not know. 
Well, I hope it's a large amount for Fox. <laughs> well, to, to Trisha's point, can you recover punitive damages in a case like this? Yes, you can. Uh, you typically prove uh, actual malice, and that entitles you to punitive damages. There are additional things you have to prove to get punitive damages in terms of ill will. Right. But yes, punitive damages are available in defamation cases. And that would be on top of the $2.7 billion? Yes. There you go, Trish. Yeah, that's a lot of money. But your client, you know, has sustained significant damages, right? Yeah. I mean, you have a, a story where they have spent a, a long time trying to build their brand internationally, and their brand's been significantly injured. At least that's what we're alleging in the complaint. And so yeah. um, that's what they need. Yeah, I've read a lot about their election work overseas, and it seems like they were really on an upward trajectory. They have spent a lot of time and a lot of their energy making a very secure and audible election technology. I mean, that's what they've built their company on, making sure that you know it's secure, making sure that you know there's a, a paper trail that can go back and be checked. And they've been successful with it, and this obviously has thrown them off. Well, speaking of brands, I think that probably the good news is if this goes to trial and Fox News decides to stand on its brand and the, the standards of journalism for which it's known, that's probably going to be more of an admission than a defense, right? <laughs> I, I don't want to comment on that. <laughs> that's probably a good place for us to take a break. We'll be right back with Stranger Than Legal Fiction. Do you have a legal matter that you need resolved but want to avoid the expense of going to court? The litigation process can be stressful and costly, but there's another solution, mediation. The Chicago Bar Association Mediation Service enables you to choose a qualified attorney mediator to help resolve your business or legal dispute efficiently and for a reasonable fee. All participating attorneys have been fully vetted by the Chicago Bar Association. They have undergone an extensive training process to ensure that they provide the highest quality service and can guide you to an amicable resolution of your dispute. Call 312-554-2040 or email mediation at chicagobar.org to get started with the Chicago Bar Association Mediation Service today. And we're back with Stranger Than Legal Fiction. Our audience knows the rules. They're pretty straightforward. Trish and I have done some research on the interwebs. We found one law that is real, but probably shouldn't be. We've made another one up, and we're going to quiz each other and our guest, Eric, to see who can distinguish strange legal fact from fiction. Eric, are you ready to play? I'm really not ready to play. I feel like this is only set up to make me feel like I don't know the law or I have to go back to law school, which I don't think I would do well in. You've read that perfectly. Yeah, I feel bad that we've sandbagged you with this, but it's going to be a good laugh for us. So you're contributing to the pod. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Trish, why don't you lead us off? Sure. So I, as we enter almost one entire year of working from homes, I've been thinking a lot about where I want to go for my first trip. And so both of my laws are Australia inspired. So again, Eric, one is true and one is not true. So... In Australia, if you have to use a restroom and cannot locate one after a diligent search, you can publicly urinate on the rear left tire of your vehicle. Or in Australia, in Western Australia, it is illegal to possess more than 50 kilograms of potatoes unless you have a license to do so. John, I'm going to make you go first so Eric feels comfortable answering. 
All right. Well, I know the first one is playing on shameless stereotypes of Australians, so I'm going to guess that's the real one. So you think the public urination is the real one? I've known some Aussies, and that makes sense to me. Okay, so... In my opinion. In my opinion. (laughs) I know some Aussies, too. I I feel like they would hold it. I think the potato is a true law. Maybe I'm just thinking about this being from Ireland, and we love our potatoes so much. Because I like potatoes so much, I would think that I would have to have a restriction on how many potatoes people can have so they don't hoard them. Wow. I didn't realize we were going to have a mole for big potato here. No, I'm just telling you, (laughs) potatoes are the best thing. I mean, russet potatoes, yellow potatoes, golden potatoes, they're all fantastic. How did I run into a potato expert? (laughs) Listen, potatoes every week. So Eric is right. Yes, Yes. Eric is right. Nice work. John, the law about urinating on the rear left tire of your vehicle is a uh, very common urban legend in Australia, but is not mm. actually true. So, okay, so so not a law, but a common practice. <laughs> Correct, and you can do it, from what I can tell, so long as you don't get caught. So, okay, so I'm going to yeah. take that as a win. We both win. Yeah, I you feel like win. you got. I, I think you guys are defaming Australians right now. So. <laughs> Well, well said, we're going to need a defense lawyer. I don't know anyone who could help them with that. Yeah. <laughs> if anyone from the Australian consulate is listening, give me a ring. <laughs> we actually have a surprisingly robust international audience, so that's a possibility. Um, that is a concerning possibility. Okay, let's move on. Option number one. In 1930s Nazi Germany, gluttony was a crime punishable by up to five years imprisonment and penal servitude and 200,000 marks. So that's option one, being fat in Germany in the 30s. Option two, in Little Rock, Arkansas, it's illegal to honk a car horn near any place sandwiches and cold drinks are sold after 9 p.m. Trish, you put me on the spot first, so I'm returning the favor. I was just trying to be nice to our guest, but um, (laughs) I think that number two is probably a real law. Why? Because it just seems like a noise ordinance, you know, in a gathering place after nine o'clock. That said, okay. it would not, it wouldn't shock me if I was wrong about this. Nazi Germany seemed to have some pretty strict standards about, you know, don't, don't, a lot don't of hedge. Stand so by your I, opinions. But I, don't hedge. But I, I'm going with number two. I think number two is the actual law. Eric? <sighs> You know, so I was a history major, and oh, I feel no. <laughs> like I should know if the, there was a law in the books in Germany back in 1930s regarding gluttony. I, I, I think I missed that in my class when I was in school. So since I haven't heard of that law, not that I know all German law and not that I know all German law from the 1930s, starting in 1935, I know most of the German law, but just pre-1935, I'm really handicapped there. So I'm going to say that that's not a real law. I'm going to go with the noise ordinance in Little Rock. I agree with Trish. I I think that's a real law. Okay, before I reveal the answer, let's just rewind a little bit and talk about that masterful, humble brag about how, oh, I know know German law in like 1936. (laughs) Right, yeah. How many toothpicks are on the ground right now? I, this is very impressive that we we happen to just randomly pick two categories in which you have an impressive amount of knowledge. Yeah, and I just made that up about Germany. I don't know anything about Germany. Oh, look at that. <laughs> look at that. 
<laughs> and the student becomes the teacher. <laughs> Chapter 18, Section 18-54 of the Little Rock, Arkansas Municipal Code says it is illegal to honk a car horn near any place that sells sandwiches and cold drinks after 9 p.m. But, Trish, to reward your hedging, yeah. the gluttony law in Germany was a bill. It just never became law, which, you know, probably explains Hermann Goring's weight at the end of the war. He was just <laughs> eating his genocidal feelings. Yeah, but Goring's last name, so he had to be a big dude. <laughs> and <laughs> there's some jokes there, but let's skip over them. And right. <laughs> that's going to be our show for today. I wanted to thank our guest, Eric Connolly, for this important and informative conversation. Good luck to you, sir. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you taking the time, and I enjoyed talking with you. I it's our pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. I also want to thank our co-host, Trish Rich, despite her penchant for interrupting, our executive producer, Jen Byrne, Adam Lockwood on sound, and everyone at the Legal Talk Network family. Remember, you can follow us and send us comments, questions, episode ideas, or just troll us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at CBA at the bar, all one word. Please also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you download your podcast. It helps us get the word out. Until next time, for everyone here at the CBA, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you soon at the bar. <laughs>